I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. Okay, we are back in action. Dr. Manning, how you doing? I am cool. Cool. Yeah, I'm chilling. Looks like you have more books behind you. Um, yeah. Since the last time we recorded. And I see you with the baller camera now. You look so clear that I feel like I can reach out and stroke your face or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually wish that you could. Aw, and I know. Yeah. Done some upgrades to my home office. So. I know. It looks nice. It looks Thank really you. nice. Yeah, I've been on a book binge, you know, somehow the busier I am, the more books I read because it just stabilizes my life. So I have more books to talk to you about than we have time for on this episode. Okay. Okay. Do you want to just jump right in and give me two book recommendations? Okay. So the first one has been out for a couple of years, I think since 2021. Um, Have you heard of Between Two Kingdoms by Suleika Jouad? No, I have not. Yeah. So the cool thing about this writer whom I have been following since I was in medical school, basically at the age of 22, like not even a year or two out of college, she was diagnosed with acute um, myeloid leukemia and just kind of like derailed her life at this point where you're like, you're just totally like future tripping, like all the things that you see in front of you. And then kind of like a slingshot, you're brought right back into this other dimension of shifting your identity into someone who is ill. And so that's kind of the premise of the book, like between two kingdoms, between the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick. But she started documenting her experience going through chemo for the first time and um, in a New York Times column. And that was actually the piece that made me subscribe to the New York Times. And oh, wow. Like that is the whole reason I have a New York Times subscription was so I could follow that column in medical school. Okay. okay. So, so fast forward, I apologize for belaboring this. Maybe this, this will be my one recommendation. Okay. In the book, you know, it's kind of like a two part. It's like, you know, her experience, again, documented just like in beautiful language around her experience, really with this devastating diagnosis. And then actually having to learn how to live again. Mm. Um, And what's beautiful is that when she started this column, she started getting a lot of letters, outreach from people across the country. And so um, part of refinding herself in the moment post um post-chemo was doing on this like epic road trip around the country where she visited a lot of the people who had written to her. Wow. And her during that time. What's also interesting is that the book also shares some of the beginnings of a budding romance with one who will later learn to come find out is actually John Batiste. Oh, wow. Yeah. The jazz musician prodigy. Wow. They wow. met as teenagers at band camp and like had kept in touch. And so one of the th- reasons why this book is so cool 
for many reasons, but particularly at this point, is because there is a documentary that just came out on Netflix that I would also recommend called American mm-hmm. Symphony, which it's really about John and a pivotal point in his career where he's just got all these Grammys and it's just like, you know, writing this symphony for Carnegie Hall. But at the same time, they learn that, you know, she's relapsed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And kind of going through this kind of juxtaposition of, you know, the, that reality versus, you know, this like fairy tale of his like musical career. It's just, it's really beautiful. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Well, wow. That was, I didn't yeah. even see all that coming. See, I yeah. should have known with all those books stacked behind you. Y'all can't see what I see, but I mean, <laughs> she is really looking like, you know, a luminary to the literary world right now with all this behind her. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. Well, I am currently listening to, but not done with a book called Wellness by mm-hmm. Nathan Hill. As y'all know, I love me an audiobook, mm-hmm. And um, I don't even know who the narrator is, but this narration is sublime. The book is extremely interesting and wittily written. It was on Oprah's list, which doesn't always mean the book is going to be good, but Mm. this is a very strong recommendation for a brilliant narrator that is really, really, really awesome. See if we could if we could transpose your your audiobooks into like physical books, they would probably fill your entire house. They would. And I also oftentimes will um after I've really enjoyed an audiobook, I will I will buy the actual hard copy book and put it on a shelf because I'm like, well, I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, just so that I can have it. So, so you know, I think the reason why I wasn't immediately like I'm doing great today mm-hmm. um, isn't because I'm not doing great today. I'm in a really like space of feeling very grateful, but I have some people around me that, um, or just in my world or adjacent to my world that are grieving um, mm-hmm. losses. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the older you get, the more you are just reminded of how fortunate you are to have a new day to sit across from somebody and tell them you love them or hug them or say anything to them, right? So I just want to hold space uh, for for two people who left us recently, um, one of whom um, is the husband of one of our former chief residents, one of my favorite people. His name is the chief resident's name is Dustin Stallo and his husband unfortunately uh, passed away probably, you know, like about a week and a half ago. But when I tell you, if ever in the Everest of Evers, there was a love that makes you want to be in love, it is them. I have just, I, I mean, you can't, you can't know Dustin and not know um, his beautiful, special, loving husband. So I just absolutely love them the two mm. of them so much. Mm. So I kind of really miss Kyle and watching their love story continue to unfold. But, you know, it's going to continue to unfold just in a, in a different way. And I'm sad mm. about that. The other person is a guy who was like a big brother to me at Tuskegee. He His name was Rudy DeVoe. And Rudy was um, the captain of our football team. And just this gentle giant who left us also last week, but is... Somebody that truly the whole world can agree. If um, if you got a problem with Rudy, it is truly you. Mm. You can, you, it is, it, you cannot be a good person and not like Rudy. The nicest, kindest person and the embodiment of what it means to be a dedicated son of Mother Tuskegee really taught us how to be a good, loyal, committed alum who gives back, not just, you know, of your resources, but of your time and talents and love and energy. So our whole Tuskegee alumni community, we are 
Like he's he's really one of the goats for us. And we're really reeling from that. Just a reminder. I mean, I think both of those people, both Kyle and Rudy would just be like, hey, look, man, love like you mean it. Live a life so that you don't have to have any regrets. And if there is somebody in this world that loves you and that you love, make sure that you are showing them and not making that thing ambiguous. So if you're listening to this and you got an issue with somebody, please, for the love of all that is pure, squash it. Because the last thing you expect to hear sometimes is that was your last time. So I am really happy to be looking at you, sis, and to be talking to you after a break. Mm-hmm. You know, I see, you know, Mahalia's twisted down professionally. And, uh-huh. you know, it's just good to see you. Thank you. And likewise, you and Jules. Yes. She, she get a little trim recently? Got a little trim recently. You know, we went to go see Usher um, last week. What? Mm-hmm. Of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. yeah. 16 hours, flew to um, Vegas, got off the plane, had dinner, went to the concert and got on the plane and left and came back. If that is not some mic drop grown woman stuff. I was about to say that that is those yeah. are grown woman moves. Grown woman. That's that 53. You don't know, you don't know nothing about that. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, y'all, we have delayed enough. <laughs> what I know you all came here here for, and it is not to hear me tell you about the grown woman moves I make, although I can tell you more about that later. Maybe that's, maybe that'll be a new podcast. Yeah. <laughs> grown woman moves with Dr. Manny. <laughs> um, but today is a special day, party people. We get to reignite this new season with none other than the matchless, um, the amazing, the brilliant, the beautiful, Dr. Ashley McMullen. So what you got? I mean, sis, what's the what? The what is WTF. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. WTF. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay. And I won't I won't spell that out, but in the unlikely event you don't know what that stands for, I will leave it to you all, the listeners, to look it up. Yes. And you know that the last letter of that acronym is one of my favorite words. So. <laughs> yes, yes. And and Dr. Manning has been known to let a few of those slip. Um, I know, I know, messing up our rating. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So what, oh, whoops, WTF. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's see if we remember how to do this. All um, right, all right, all right, all right. I'm yeah. Ready. You know, and to be honest, this is a story I've been kind of sitting on, chewing on for a while. I, I, I remember sharing it for the first time with a group of residents that I was doing a teaching session with about a year or so ago. And it's actually an experience that I'm not proud of. Um, and I'll just kind of preface the story with that, and then we can kind of unpack it later. But this story starts my second year of residency. So at this point, I've officially transitioned into the, the senior resident role which at UCSF, you know, comes with, you know, a pretty decent level of responsibility, autonomy. And so I was on a rotation that was cardiology, and it is at our safety net hospital, San Francisco General, which is very much like um, Grady in terms of the patients it serves in the San Francisco community. 
And so what's unique about this rotation is that, you know, it's one resident, one intern, you have about four teams, these dyad teams and one attending. And so the attending is really kind of like, you know, the overseer, like we do rounds in the morning and then really it's kind of the senior resident and the fellow who are kind of running the show on the ground. And at that point, you know, as an R2, whenever I was on call every couple of days, I would be on call for 28 hours straight. Mm. And so you're, you're capable of admitting patients literally from, you know, 7 a.m. The, the, of that morning till 7 a.m. the next day. Yeah. So it's a pretty heavy lift, but a rotation that I felt, you know, pretty confident on actually, and had a lot of fun because I had a great team and a great set of attendings. But I remember this was a point in the year where you kind of, my experience was, you know, you tend to get a little crispier um, around the winter, like post-holiday season, the days are Mm -hmm. short, you know, you're working long hours. And, you know, I think like many of us, I, I fell very readily into that trap of kind of dehumanizing the experience of being sick for the sake of my own kind of survival, Mm. prioritizing efficiency, really getting into algorithms, treatment, things like that, without really allowing myself to feel all the necessary feels to really empathize with um, patients who come into the hospital sick. So I was on, I think it was one of my last call nights. I actually think it was my last call night of this rotation, which again, Mm. long rotation, long hours, lots of learning, but, you know, just lots of, lots of stuff coming through, you know, and it's not just the the patient care, it's kind of negotiating with the emergency staff around like who gets admitted and, you know, all the stuff that comes with the logistics that really kind of take you away from patient care. So on my last call night, the other responsibility as the senior on-call resident for cardiology um, is that you also carry the code pager. And so this is the pager that you don't want to have go off in the middle of the night. Um, but it really, what that means is that somewhere, someone somewhere in the hospital has uh, lost the pulse mm. and they need whatever hands on deck can actually come in and, and help restore uh, circulation to that patient. You know, of course, like there are the designated roles, like the code leader was actually the, the ICU resident, um, but the card's resident, the cardiology resident was um, responsible for for showing up and, you know, basically filling in where you need to fill in, whether that's grabbing an ultrasound and trying to, you know, look at what the heart's doing, jumping in for compressions or whatever else is needed. And part of that was because my call room was very close to the ICU. Okay. Um, and so it's my, my last night on call. And I remember that feeling so vividly where you're like, in this cold little ass like call room. <laughs> I used to like lay in bed with my shoes on <laughs> just in case. Yeah. And I would, I would actually leave my pager like next to my ear. Girl, <laughs> I would, that, that, that's been a thing for years. Right. So, you know, needless to say, it's not the most like restful <laughs> like environment. You know, you're trying to catch a couple Z's while also like your heart, you know, is kind of in this vice grip around like you could be called at any moment, either for an admission or a code or what have you. And so if I remember correctly, like it had been a busy night, but not one of like the most busiest nights I've had. And I think that's by virtue of the fact that I was actually able to lay down a lot of times I'm on my feet the entire time. And so 
you know, it was at least the type of night where I could like lay in the bed for a minute and try to catch a couple like, you know, fraught Z's. Mm-hmm. And before I know it, boom, the code page was going off. And again, as a relatively recent R2, like I've been to codes, I've like run maybe one or two, but, you know, to have a code at the safety net hospital, like in the ICU, and particularly this was in the surgical ICU, Mm. it's just like, you don't know what could happen. So I just like, I jump out of bed. I've already got my shoes on. I'm like, you know, grab my white coat, all the papers flying everywhere, run out the call room, down the hall to the ICU. And, you know, without even knowing the room number, you just look, look, look where all the folks where, where the where's the commotion yeah follow the chaos and there was a lot of chaos in this room um so it is a patient who looks like they're post-op mm-hmm. um i don't recall like what was going on this person was obviously very quite sick but not sick enough to where they were on event at least at that time you know it seemed like they had been recovering and there was an acute drop in their blood pressure And I see the surgeons at the bedside. They're actually evaluating the wound, like taking it down. There's a lot of activity happening. So I just, I jump in and I start doing chest compressions. And you saw that there was no pulse. There was no pulse. And actually my, my colleague who is like this badass, like tiny woman was just like a boss at the foot of the bed. You know, the way she was barking out or as you would have thought she was 10 feet tall, like, right, right, right. you know, she had control of the room. The surgeons were at the bedside, anesthesia rolls in and they're securing the airway. I am like guns out, rolling up my sleeves, chest compressions, putting my whole body into it. You know, we're going through the cycles and, you know, it's just like a lot of adrenaline in the room. And that patient eventually gets ROSC, which is okay. a return of spontaneous circulation. Exactly. So we get a pulse. I like take a step back. I realize my role here is, is done. So I step out of the room and to be honest, like, you know, I'm I'm feeling kind of badass at this point. You know, this is TV drama. The anesthesia resident who was on call that night and secured the airway, put in an intubation tube while we were you know, running the code was actually a friend of mine, mm. um, someone that I had done a prior ICU rotation with. And we saw each other like right outside the room and we're like hyping each other up. He was just like, did you see me throw in that ET tube like a boss? I was like, hell yeah, you secured that airway like a boss. And we like high five outside the room. Like, you know, we had just played a basketball game. Oh my God. Mm. And um. <laughs> I swear, like not even two seconds afterwards, I turn to go and I see this patient's family standing outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, they're not looking at me. I don't know if they saw, but they're looking in the room at their loved one and they look absolutely terrified. Mm-hmm. They're like standing there holding each other. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, like everything that I was feeling in that moment leading up to that was all about me. Mm-hmm. It was all about feeling like the the newness of this role, this independence, you know, being this R2 and feeling finally like a doctor and a badass and completely forgetting like that there was a woman on the table who, to be honest, like, and I knew this in my core was probably not going to make it through the night. Mm. Like, even when we got another pulse, like this person was still really, really unstable. 
And um, the fact that, you know, she wasn't intubated beforehand, you know, says that she was probably stable and like, you know, probably there was hope for a good outcome after this surgery. Um, Who knows, maybe her parents, I don't know, or family members got to go in the room and share some words or, or touch her or see her face. And, you know, this this acute um, change happened in the middle of the night when they happened to still be there. Mm. Maybe they were getting ready to go home or maybe someone called them to come to the bedside because it wasn't looking good. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. All I know was that in that moment, I did not see a human being on the table. Mm. I just saw a team. I saw a job. I saw a task and um, I wasn't seeing her, the patient or her family. Mm. And I will never forget the look in their eyes or like what happened to me in that moment, which was literally in my mind, it was just like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, what is wrong with me? Mm. What just happened? Almost like a a flag on the play, like Mm. you have Mm. said before, where it's just like, oh, okay. (laughs) Like something is wrong here. Something has changed. Cause I will say like, as an intern, I would have never, I, I, like, I, I had not developed the type of insensitivity that I was displaying at that point. There was something that had shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went back to the call room. I didn't get any other pages that night. I just kind of sat there and um, the witching hour came up. It was getting um, close to seven. So I was able to kind of gather my, my notes on the patients that I admitted overnight and get ready to round you know, right as I was getting ready to hand off the call pager to the next, um, the next resident coming on, I heard the the code be called again on that same room. And I actually didn't go back. Because you felt ashamed or because it was a, it was a mix. I mean, technically I didn't, I didn't have to, I was signing out, but I also, I was also really embarrassed about my behavior. And I didn't think I could go back and face that family again. Mm. So, yeah, I I think even as I'm telling that story, I'm feeling myself activated. (laughs) It's both like the emotions of being part of a code team and like, you know, the hyper focus that that requires and, you know, perhaps a bit of detachment, but also just like that sinister way in which we are so capable of dehumanizing each other in moments that really beg for us to be so much more humane. And, you know, I feel like we've touched on this theme before, but, you know, just, I feel like it can't be stated enough around how much we need to protect our, our spirits in Mm -hmm. this work and particularly in our training you know, it's not going to be perfect. It's not easy. It's not messy, you know, until we uproot the entire structure and try to do things differently. I think that we still have to hold ourselves accountable for the ways in which we can met out more harm, even as we're giving like the utmost value-driven care. Yeah. And to check in with ourselves in those moments where you need to throw a flag on the play, like do so. Yeah. I mean, so, so I'm listening to this and um, the other thing that we've been conditioned to do is, is, is hold all the blame and the shame um, mm-hmm. as all because this is what we did. We did the wrong thing. 
Um, and to be clear, you know, I, I do think it's good to have some accountability. Like, yeah, you know, you shouldn't have been high fiving outside of nobody's room when somebody was sick. However, mm-hmm. what this was, um, was the hidden curriculum and um, hidden curricula had normalized a celebration of of people doing things and getting procedures and it not really being connected to the human. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the PGY2 or second year resident is definitely who is most at risk because you arrive, you know, as a bright eyed, bushy tailed intern straight out of medical school and um, you have all these humanistic thoughts in you and you and you know better. Mm-hmm. Then um, you start working all these hours and you start seeing things and you start seeing who's celebrated and for what. And then things start to look normal to you that were not normal before. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember as a MedPeds resident, I remember as a fourth year, we had um, this one call and um, Peds that was like, if you were the PICU senior in the P- pediatric intensive care unit, there was a point where you were the senior most person in house. And if there was a procedure they couldn't get on the floors, you went down to the floors to help them. And um, it was one of these nights where, you know, things had kind of quieted down enough for me to like close my eyes in the ICU. And I got called and and I remember just telling them, have my six and a halfs ready. I don't want any family in the room. I want everything ready when I get there. And I don't want to stay to clean anything up. So I'm coming to do the procedures. So I remember strutting down the hall like a power walker. And some clogs that probably you could smell through my <laughs> socks because I was I had been working for over 30 hours. Mm-hmm. And the family, I remember this this couple in the hallway wringing their hands as I just walked, marched right past them, pushed into the treatment room, put on my gloves, didn't even ask no questions, immediately took the spinal needle, did the LP on this infant, mm. saw, saw the clear fluid come out like one pulp pop. Peeled the gloves off, put another pair of gloves on, put a tourniquet on the leg, put IV in, flushed it, handed the leg over to the intern, took the gloves off, took the tourniquet off, walked out past the family. Mm. And I remember the next day it was like Rocky. Wow. I was like the woman. I mean, <laughs> even telling the story. Yeah. I, I they're like as awful as I know that was, I remember how proud I was of myself, mm-hmm. how how dope I felt and mm-hmm. how like, that's right. Yep. That's right. You too will be here at this point when you get to my level, you know? <laughs> yep. But, but that was all because that's what I had seen, mm-hmm. um, you know, from a solutions oriented space, you know, the way that we have like the timeout to stop people from having a mistake. We almost need to tell people to have like an internal timeout mm-hmm. before an emergency, a code, something like that, a procedure not just a timeout, like, what am I doing? Why? Who is this? But also, this is a human being. This is so-and-so's child. This is so-and-so's mom. This is so-and-so's uncle. To humanize the person before you get ready to start doing what you, when you get ready to do. And I don't think we, we have that. So, yeah. No, I love that, that idea. I mean, I've been away from the inpatient uh, world for so long. You know, I have no, I don't have a sense of whether or not there's been any shift on ways of re- rehumanizing those really acute situations. and, and But it's I- also, it's not even an inpatient, outpatient thing. I mean, dehumanizing patients is is a fluid thing that happens everywhere. So even yeah. if you're in clinic, right, and you have, you know, seven patients for the morning session, 
and, you know, somebody comes in and they were supposed to be a telehealth visit and they couldn't get connected. Mm -hmm. And um, you walk out in the hallway and go, yes, sir, I'm going to lunch. You know, (laughs) I mean, I say that to say that these little sort of things that we do to people, some of them sure are life or death, like a code. Mm-hmm. But, but, but it it could still be you know a million tiny paper cuts to somebody. Absolutely. Um, and then, and then you wonder why somebody doesn't trust the hospital care system. What to like. say? And then the mm-hmm. ways that those experiences, you know, you know, de incentivize folks to to seek care before it gets to a point of of life or death is also really important to to consider. Well, you are not by yourself in um, having done stuff like that. And I, I do feel like I see a little bit less of that. Um, but I don't know if we, I see less of it because the the culture has moved toward you, you know better and you're not supposed to be doing that in front of people. Mm-hmm. Or if it is really genuinely that we realize like, yo, that's really foul. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. But I do think that it it does give us a moment to take pause to think about mm-hmm. across the board how how are we placing the importance of our lives as greater than that of our patients? Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah. because your your time technically is as important as mine. Yeah. Your money is as is important as my money. Time is not a renewable resource mm-hmm. and um it's probably the one of the biggest ways we do harm to patients. Yeah. Is thinking our time somehow is is of greater value than theirs. Yeah. You know, to to reemphasize your your earlier point too, it's just like, you know, we need to start paying attention in terms of like what gets rewarded as, you know, particularly as as folks are coming up in training and and what gets kind of shunned. Yeah, and I will say this, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. So there there were people when I was in training who who did humanize patients mm-hmm. and who did make sure that we paid attention to what we were doing and who modeled that for us. Yeah. There were pe- there were people like that. Um it was just that the whole system um moved toward efficiency and toward getting things done um mm-hmm. without having to do it more than once. Yeah. So if you could do something fast and not have to do it more than once, um then that was the thing, you know, that was valued. <sighs> Child, see, we are a work in progress. I know, right? It's... <laughs> you can see, it. We, y'all thought we were going to come back and tell you a story about how, you know, we did everything right, but no, <laughs> sorry. Yes. You know, yeah. we just as raggedy and broken as we were when we left. <laughs> but, you know, I think hopefully there, there's hope still, like, you know, if we are a work in progress. There are many of us who are a work in progress and there's no shame in that. So... It's the growth mindset, man. I'm telling you, but at least I get to, you know, share share my story with you, who whom I know won't won't judge me and will help me to see new and different perspectives in, in my own stories. And yeah, I'm I'm happy to report on the growth that has happened in my life since since those yeah. days. Yeah, because whatever you tell me that's raggedy, I got something more raggedy <laughs> that I did. <laughs> that's what I'm banking on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sis, um, somebody listening to this is gonna gonna see themselves in it too. And this is your opportunity to do your humanistic timeout mm-hmm. before you step into the space, whether that be in the outpatient setting with somebody that's been waiting for an hour to see you, or whether it be somebody who has lost their pulse. 
in an ICU mm-hmm. while 500 people dig around, poke and prod them. Yeah. What if that was your loved one? What if that was you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, sis, it's great to be uh, kicking off this holiday season back with you. Yes. And um, I'm excited about seeing what's going to happen with this year season as am i especially next week when you're back on the mic (laughs) all right then peace up a town down especially if you saw usher in vegas like i did (laughs) (laughs) that wraps up this week's episode of the human doctor podcast special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist dr chuma obiname for the beats Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and the Clinical Problem Solvers, our Med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.